Welcome to the IFS University College podcast. This episode features a recording of a recent prestige lecture with Dame Colette Bow, Chairman of the Banking Standards Board. During her presentation, Dame Collette talks about the role of professionalism might play in restoring the trustworthiness of the banking sector and how the Banking Standards Board is exploring this idea. For further information about our courses, including full and part-time undergraduate degrees in banking and practice management, please visit ifslearning.ac.uk. Thank you very much indeed, Roy. I'm very grateful for that generous introduction, and I'm very pleased to be here tonight from the Banking Standards Board, a new body which I hope most of you have at least heard of. We were set up in uh, about a year ago. We got going. I was appointed in uh, the back end of uh, 2014 to chair the Banking Standards Board. And for those of you who are interested and would like to visit our website, uh, you will see something of what we've done in our first year. I'm rather proud of the fact that we, we got cracking rather quickly and have made some progress. Uh, the Banking Standards Board is um, it's an unusual kind of body. It isn't a regulator. It isn't a trade body, so we're not here to um, lobby for, for banks, although that's a perfectly respectable thing to do, but it's not what we do. We are a non-statutory body that sprang out of a report done by the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards, which reported in 2013, and they said uh, and I'm shorthanding this here a bit, they said, wouldn't it be a good idea if the banking industry itself really stepped up to the plate and took over responsibility for setting its own really high standards of conduct and competence? Now, why they said that, I think, stems from something that I... I, I guess most of us in the room, certainly I think all of us who've worked in and around this industry would recognise, which is that regulation, of which of course we have quite a lot, regulation can only take you so far. Regulation gives you, if you like, the, the boundaries of what must be done. What it doesn't do is talk about all the other stuff that we all aim to do in our personal as well as our professional lives. I was, in, um, I was in America last week and I was talking to people in Washington and New York about what we're doing. And it, it was quite interesting to be in a slightly different culture from the culture of the UK where uh, the law and lawyers and enforcement and regulation are extremely prominent. And there were one or two moments when I was in meetings there when I could feel that the people I was talking to were, were struggling with the idea of the limits of regulation and, and what is this space that you might occupy that is not regulation. And in the end, I, I hit on a kind of homely 
analogy, which I'm, I'm going to try out on you tonight and tell me whether you think this one works. I, I said to one person, look, um, there's no law, certainly in our country, that says you have to help somebody across the street if they have got limited mobility. There's no law that says that. But actually, it's what most of us would do. And that seemed to me to be a, a, a sort of quick, neat, everyday way of saying, you know, yep, there's laws that says, you know, you don't cross when the light's on red. There are unstated norms and expectations about behavior that say, if you're standing next to somebody at the crossing and you can see they're going to have a little bit of a problem getting across, then you, you give them an arm and you help them across. And I, I'd be quite interested to know whether, uh, when we get to the Q&A session, whether you think that's a, uh, a, a sort of intelligible way of trying to describe the, the, the difference between the law that says this, the regulation that says you will do this, you will not do that, and then that large space that is, that is occupied by what you might call doing the right thing. And the problem with talking about doing the right thing is that it might not be totally obvious actually whether your idea of the right thing is other people's idea of the right thing. It might not be obvious how you form that view if everybody around you is taking a slightly different view. And it might not be obvious what you do about it if you think, actually, what, what I think we should be doing here in this business is this. But everybody over there is saying, no, what we do around here is that. So once you start to think in terms of what I've called doing the right thing, you then, of course, get into quite difficult territory. It's difficult for all of us as individuals in a business. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I think is where professionalism, professional standards, and the, the, the confidence and force that comes from knowing you have got appropriate professional qualifications, and if you like, the, the support of being part of a profession, that's where that comes in. So that's my kind of preamble about why this matters to all of us in this room. What I'm going to quickly just talk about is, um, I'll rehearse very briefly why this matters for this industry, although I guess everybody in the room hardly needs any reminding, but I'll just do a little, a little bit of a trip to remind us of uh, recent history. Um, I'd then like to talk a little bit about what we might mean actually by professionalism. Um, is it more than just getting qualifications? And then finally, I'd like to talk about some uh, initiatives that we've got going on at the Banking Standards Board, which I hope are things that you would all be interested in. But finally, and what I would really like to use time on, and I know uh, we're planning to have a good uh, long time for Q&A if we can tonight, I'd be very, very interested to get your feedback. You are people who are all, by virtue of being here, you are all, you've committed yourselves to professionalism just by being in this institution, in this room tonight. And I'm, I'm quite interested to know where you think 
the banking sector is right at this moment in terms of what its requirements are, whether you think we need to think harder, differently about actually what, what is needed in this industry, and what might be done to, um, uh, more to promote the value of professional qualifications, especially perhaps to younger people for whom that might not be an idea that they're, they're totally familiar with. So that's, that's roughly how I'm planning to structure this. And as I've said, I do want to leave plenty of time for uh, dialogue and, and Q&A. Um, why does it matter? Why, why does professionalism matter in banking? Well, as I look around the room, I can see that everybody in this room uh, is able to remember the absolutely catastrophic events of the banking crisis. Everybody in this room is old enough to remember those dreadful days when the global banking system came quite close, so we are led to believe, to collapse. There have been innumerable inquiries, books, articles, Parliaments have looked at it, regulators have looked at it, uh, and what we can see is there's no one single cause, but there are perhaps some common threads. One kind of common thread, and this has come up even more uh, in the course of events subsequent to the scandal of, sorry, the catastrophe of the global financial crisis of 08, one common thread is that there um, have been some people in this industry who have engaged in behaviour that is extremely bad. There have been a number of people in this industry who were taking risks which they did not understand, which is an issue about competence and professionalism. And there have been a number of people leading large institutions in this industry whose ability to lead has been called into question subsequently by regulators and others on the grounds of did the, even those who are leading big institutions fully grasp not only the risks that their own institutions were running, but the interlocking risks for the whole system that were caused by, um, were caused by a large amount of imprudent risk-taking occurring simultaneously. Incidentally, I, I don't know whether everybody in the room has seen the movie The Big Short, but there's, uh, there are some great moments in that film which explain some of these issues about, about systemic risk, about the packaging of, of dangerous products and how things that of themselves are not very high risk become very high risk when you package them all together. And for those of you who haven't seen it, I would, I would recommend it. It's actually, it's actually, it's going to become a great teaching tool, actually, because it's, it's, it conveys quite a lot. Of course, there is a kind of danger in it that everybody who sees it thinks that all you've got to do to make a lot of money is short the market. And I, I would like to see a film made soon about some people that shorted a market and end up catching a big cold as a consequence, because this film does rather present it as if this is a fairly straightforward decision. However, that said, it's, 
it's a great explanation of some of the, the, the terrible uh, errors that were made at that time that led to that catastrophe. And as I've said subsequently, um, there have been some very, very disconcerting revelations of behavior that is bad and behavior that is incompetent. So I think the case for needing, for us needing, all of us who work in and around banking, to take a really cold, long look at what is needed to conduct ourselves as professionals in this industry. I think, I think the time is ripe, and I think the time is now. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, OK, well, this is all fine. Um, but what does she mean by a profession? And as I touched on at the beginning, for me, that means something more than simply taking your exams. If you think about other well-established professions like medicine and the law, they've got a couple of things in common. One is that, for the most part, when we go to see a medical practitioner or a lawyer, we go there knowing two things. One is that this person knows more about this than we do. And second, most of us, most of the time, believe that we can trust this person not to exploit the fact that they know more about this than we do. Uh, if I was to put this in the kind of language that economists use, economists would say there's an asymmetry of information here. And the, the quotes professional, be it the medic, the lawyer, indeed the banker, has got access to much more information than the person who is sitting in front of them. And to me, the essence of being a professional is that knowing as you do so much more about how all this works, what is available, what's the optimal course of action for somebody, that you do not abuse the fact that you have access to more information than they do. Now, that's kind of a, an, an economist's take on this, because I'm, as I said, I'm seeing it in terms of asymmetry of information. But I think it's not a bad way of thinking about what's the essence of a profession and why it's much more than just saying, well, I've passed my exams. You know, yeah, I've done that, I've done this. You know, if I were going to see a doctor, for example, I would want to do a lot more than just look at their certificates hanging on the wall. I would want to feel that this was somebody who I could trust to deploy all that professional knowledge in my interest. Now, that's quite a high bar, but it seems to me that it's the bar that the banking industry should be aiming for. That the people who are in it who say, I am a professional, are people who subscribe to that commitment, if you like, that says, I will behave, I will always behave in a way that is in the interests of that person. Now, one or two people have said to me when I've said things like this before on similar occasions, 
they've said some version of don't be so daft you know we're all in business you know are you telling me i'm supposed to be you know uh, to which i've said listen um if you're in business and you systematically abuse the person on the other side of the table to you, that is not sustainable. Word gets round. Word gets round. You might, if you're in, for example, a retail business, you might, for a considerable period of time, be able to engage in abusive practices, but in the end, you will destroy your business. Because in the end, you'll be found out you will be subjected to enormous fines, penalties, regulatory sanctions. The reputation of your business will be trashed. And if you're dealing with professional counterparties, same, same. Word gets around. People will start to say, don't do business with them. You will get ripped off. Don't do business with them. They think they can see us coming, but actually we can see them coming. So I'm, I'm here to say to you tonight that I believe that doing the right thing for the person on the other side of the transaction is not something that I would urge you to do because I've had a sudden conversion to, you know, let's all be wonderful people and we're living in, you know, Shangri-La here. I'm saying that actually this is how you build and enhance sustainable business. And I know there are people in this room tonight, prominent people in the banking industry, who work for businesses that exemplify that, who have built sustainable businesses on the basis of people know they can trust them. Now, that's the first time tonight I've mentioned the word trust, but it's actually the underlying idea in everything that I'm talking to you about. I've said when we go to visit other professionals, be they doctors, be they lawyers, we know we can trust them. I think the aspiration for the banking industry needs to be that it can make itself worthy of being trusted again. People sometimes talk about, um, in fact, people often talk about, um, oh, well, what we've got to do is rebuild trust. To which I say, well, hang on, trust isn't something you can just rebuild. If you've lost trust as an industry, you've got to learn to be worthy of trust. You can't sort of go out there and demand it from people. You can't say, oh, trust us, it's all fine now, we've learnt our lesson, don't worry, we won't do that bad stuff again, you know, give us, give us trust. No, you've got to prove that you are trustworthy. And I don't think that's just sort of playing with words, actually. I think that's quite an important way of thinking about it. We have to demonstrate that we are worthy of being trusted. And that is where this business of professionalism, qualifications and standards all comes in for us who work in and around banking. Now, I was saying to some colleagues before you all came in that I know that uh, speaking to you here tonight, I'm, I'm sort of speaking to the converted in a way because everybody is, is here is here because you're committed to professionalism. But it's, it's a very, very live issue, I believe, for banking. And the headings of the issue, to me, go something like this. There was a time, and this is certainly in my adult lifetime, although that goes back quite a bit. There was a time when 
you know, you couldn't get on in banking unless you had various professional banking qualifications. Well, those days have gone. Uh, my first proposition then is that we need to bring back, uh, we need to move back towards a position where being able to demonstrate that you really know your business and you are professionally qualified in it is absolutely essential for advancement in the industry. But what does that mean? I mean, this is now a very complex industry. There are all sorts of activities that are included in the, the generic expression banking. That doesn't mean, by the way, that banking can't be a profession any more than it means medicine can't be a profession. I mean, there are loads of different branches of medicine, obviously. But I think it does mean that we have to think very hard about what it, what it means to be a banking professional. What, what is it that means, uh, what, what is it you have to do if you want to be accepted as a professional? There are, of course, and you know, the IFS University is one prominent such institution, there are several institutions who provide high quality uh, professional training in, that industri in this industry. This is all terrific and um, much to be applauded. And I'm particularly pleased tonight to be here at IFS University because I think the work that happens here is, is excellent. However, there is, quite a, there is quite a plethora of offerings. I have been asking myself whether what is on offer is comprehensive from the standpoint of the requirements of the modern banking industry. I have been asking myself whether the, those who employ people in the banking industry feel that what is on offer in terms of the range of possibilities is actually what they want. So what we have been doing at the Banking Standards Board is we have started to do a little bit of sort of ground-clearing evidence gathering. We've been talking to uh, various uh, people who provide professional training we have been talking to employers around the industry and saying what kind of things actually you know, would you support. We are hoping to be able to then move to acting as a kind of uh, broker, frankly, between these various uh, people and saying, does this, does this stack up? Is this, is this what people want as employers? Is this what people want to do? So as the year goes on, the Banking Standards Board is hoping to be able to just facilitate a bit of coming together around the industry to encourage the development of, of, of qualifications that are sort of apt, if you like, for the, the modern age. But there's another issue, and I, I, I talked a little moment ago about what it means to be in a profession. And I, I sort of skated over one aspect of the, the analogy that comes from medicine and law, which is if you're a medic or a lawyer, you are conscious of the fact that you are in a profession. You know not only that you've joined a group of people for whom there is a sort of gateway, you know, people can't just set up as, uh, but you also know that you're part of a community of people who share 
a commitment to certain standards. And I think one of the things that we could all find quite helpful would be is would be if we could develop even further that concept of professionalism of being of the profession of banker being part of a community of people who irrespective of which parts of banking they work in share a common a common ethos if you like a common commitment to doing the right things for clients under all circs and a common willingness to support colleagues because as many of you will know if you're in a firm and issues arise where you're not totally comfortable it is not always easy to be the one who puts your hand up and says well I'm not sure about that you know and not sure we should be doing that and there is an argument that says if you feel you're part of a professional community that you know you have colleagues who are part of that professional community that that will help to encourage a a culture of um, ability and willingness to speak up which uh, i think to some extent got a bit lost in this industry in the run up to the crisis so ladies and gentlemen that's my thoughts about the importance of professionalism i think it's one of the big big learnings from the terrible events of the financial crisis that we need to rebuild the ability of the banking industry to be worthy of trust that part of that has got to be the development of even more professionalism in the industry we at the banking standards board would like to work with you and with other providers of professional training to ensure that qualifications and training are available that suit the conditions of the modern banking industry but above all we'd like to support all of you as actual or future workers in this industry we'd like to support all of you to feel that you individually and collectively are part of a profession that can once again be regarded as an honorable profession to follow thank you and let's now have a talk Now I'm very happy to take uh, questions at this point and Jerry Jerry has got a mic so Jerry is the person who is going to come around with the mic the one thing I would ask is if you when you ask a question if you can tell us who you are uh, that would be um, very helpful okay I see um, a gent here in the second row thank you um, Charles Jackson I'm a fellow of the Institute um, I have, um, to answer your question about a film, the film answer is Robe Trader. Oh. It's a bit old, but... Yeah, no, yeah. I quite agree, Charles. It's another great one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, what, I, what I'd like to say is I've been, mo for most of my career, I've been a compliance and risk professional. Yeah. And I know a number of compliance and risk professionals, and I know a number of people who have tried to do the right thing and help navigate their firm to do the right thing. Notwithstanding the senior management regime that's obviously just come in last month, yeah. and obviously and the only difference I see is it's a more greater evidential process. Mm -hmm. But every single scandal 
that has existed over the last 20, 30, even longer is a repeat of what's happened before. And I today happen to meet the person from UBS who's, who's recently been in prison. That person was actually speaking at a compliance conference as it happened. Yeah. Actually, he's actually a very good person. He, he actually seems to be, I'm not trying to advocate where his no, no. position no, no. is. Mm. But in every single scandal that's ever happened, people have always concentrated on the low-hanging fruit. And it's amazing the numbers of senior management, oversight people who've just gone missing. I know a whole cadre of people, compliance, risk and audit people, who've been fired from their jobs. Paul Moore probably being the most famous example. Where it took from 2005, I'm not trying to defend Paul Moore, to 2005 until the report that came in last November. Three years beforehand, Lloyd's Banking Group were fined £32 million for fundamentally the issues he was trying to navigate yep. his board to do. People who have professionalism and qualifications often are shot down. And sometimes the industry and the professional bodies don't actually aren't able to support or the regulators aren't able to support. So I understand, that I understand and completely yeah. agree with everything you've said. But my helicopter view is actually people talk the talk but don't necessarily walk the walk. Yeah. And until that matter happens, we will never restore trust because yeah. people will think that the analogy that people use and the pun they use on bankers, and they don't treat them with the respect yeah. of a lawyer or a doctor. Yeah. But I know as many lawyers and accountants who are how I pay are, are, don't necessarily do the right thing, but I'd probably get into trouble for saying much more. Charles, I don't think I want to disagree with um, any of that, actually. Um, I think what I would, the only thing I would say, and it's, it's a rather somber thing to say in response to your point about the people at the top have got to walk the walk. This is going to take quite a long time. This isn't a kind of, oh, well, you know, we've got regulation, we've got the S SNCR, you know, we've got the Banking Standards Board, tick, done. This is going to take a generation and actually it needs the people at the top of the banks to commit it needs them to recognize the deep deep cultural failings that have led to many of the things that you've just touched on in your intervention and it needs people who are leading the banks to commit to changing that culture that's not something that's going to happen in five minutes. And it's about a lot more than just, you know, writing things on the walls about these are our values and this is what we believe in. You've got to really mean it. You've got to, you've got to mean it in the sense of your remuneration practices have got to support it. You've got to mean it in terms of your hiring and firing practices have got to support it. And it is going to take a long time. Getting into this mess took quite a long time, although it seemed to burst upon us quite suddenly. It's going to take quite a while to reverse it. However, I am highly encouraged by the fact that this totally voluntary, non-statutory thing that we've now set up, which is to dedicate it to raising standards and changing culture, has already attracted massive support from the leading UK banks. Now, they've still got to deliver. But at least 
it's the support is there. So there's a beginning there, Charles, but that's as far as I would say we've gone. <coughs> but thank you very much for your intervention. Now, who have we got? Uh, yes, over there. Dame Collett, firstly, thank you very much for your talk, which uh, I certainly found very inspiring. Um, my name's James Nisbet. I've worked in the banking industry for 20 years, um, but I currently serve in the Royal Navy because uh, I've also served um, for 17 years as a reservist and I'm now working full-time for the Royal Navy. Um, my question to you is that the one word I've not heard you mention is the word service. Now, we're here at the behest of the Institute of Financial Services. Yes. Um, when I joined the banking industry in 1994, uh, I started on a graduate scheme and went through the process of gaining my professional qualifications, my ACIB. I got a degree in financial services. Um, but as I've gone through my career over the last 20 years, I've seen the emphasis on service, i.e. serving others rather than yourself, um, really has, has degenerated in the industry. And I'd just be interested in your views as to whether we need to put more emphasis now on serving others. James, that's a, very, that's a very good spot. And the reason I didn't get into that was because I had committed to our friends who are organizing here tonight that I would try to keep my remarks within boundaries. However, I would very much like you to go onto the Banking Standards Board website because there you will see the, the results of our first year's work of assessment of the 10 founding banks of the Banking Standards Board. And we have done a, an assessment this year of where they are in terms of a number of aspects of their culture. And how we kicked that off was I wrote to the chairman uh, of each of these banks, chairman being a gender-free word in my book, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. And um, not least because one of the, ch the chairman of Santander is, of course, a woman. And um, I asked them a number of questions. And it wasn't a sort of, you know, here are 40 questions to do on a Friday afternoon. There were four questions. And the first one is what is the purpose of your bank? And in their different ways, every single one, and everybody had different language for this, but every single one of these chairmen came back and said some version of, we recognize that we are doing more than just running a business here. We recognize that we are integral to the working of our society and that we are here to serve the needs of that society. So I've, I've sort of underplayed that theme completely, James, in the interests of making this manageable. But it's, it's, it's there, and it's a course. It's a course why most of us want to do this. You know, working in banking isn't, isn't at all like most other jobs. You know, it's a job where it is really central to how a society like ours works. And actually, it's why the events of the financial crisis were so devastating in terms of trust, because people, people's sense of how our society organized itself 
was completely and utterly challenged very destructively by the revelations of that crisis. So I totally agree with you. On a slightly different tack, um, I'm very interested you're in the Navy because one of the things that I have been doing as part of my work at the Banking Standards Board is talking to some senior military people about how our professional armed services are now training people and how you train people not only, you will know all this, Jane, but how you in effect train people not only for the, the battle plan, but what people do in the sort of fog of war when the battle plan hasn't gone according to plan and how you can train people to make the right decisions under conditions of uncertainty. Hi there, uh, Gareth Narayan-Singh. Um, so uh, I think this may have been uh, uh, touched upon in the recent Banking Standard Board uh, annual report, but I was just keen to get your view on the use of remuneration as a performance incentive tool for bankers. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just touched briefly on that, I think, in what I said a moment ago. Um, we have asked all of the banks who we have appraised this year to give us detailed information about, not about, you know, what do you pay people and why, because that's actually not our business, but about how their, remu their remuneration policies reinforce the culture that they are aiming to develop or, or, or support within their business. Um, that's, that's my interest in this. It's very much not my business to say to the chairman of you know, Bank A, I think you're paying your chief executive too much, or what makes you think that person is worth that. But I think a legitimate question, if you're interested in standards and culture, is you know, why, do, why do your policies seem to remunerate those who take, for example, certain kinds of risk? whereas they don't seem to reward people who invest time and effort in acquiring appropriate professional qualifications. These are, I think, the important questions, for certainly for us, on remuneration. And we'll be saying more about this in our, in our next report. This year was a bit, of a, a bit of a sighting shot, actually. Now, could I have a question from um, a lady in the room, please? Because... Um, we've only had questions from men so far, so... Lorna Blackmore, uh, committee member, retired banker um, in fraud area. Looking at trust, looking at culture, doctors have to have medical uh, insurance. Yeah. Solicitors have to have professional indemnity. Yes. How about bankers individually having to pay for theirs? Would that get, give people trust in them? Well, that's a, that's a really good question, isn't it? I remember back in the 90s when I was running a regulator that had a large number of IFAs in its membership. There was an enormous issue about whether IFAs actually could get um, professional indemnity insurance, which ultimately we were able to overcome some legal problems so they could. Um, do you know, I'm not sure whether it would help with the building of trust on the part of the general public, because, to be honest, I'm not totally sure the general public always understands that the professional they're dealing with has got PII, actually. 
but I think it would possibly sure help people working in the business, actually. Whether you could, whether you could develop such a product for bankers might be the best test there is of um, trustworthiness, mightn't it? Have we got any regulators here tonight, by any chance? Or is there anybody here who wants to admit to being a regulator? <laughs> <laughs> we have got some regulators here. <laughs> I know you're all clustering there. Um, do, is, there, is, there a, is there a regulatory view about this? Or, or do you think actually PII for individuals in the business is, is just um, so conducive to moral hazard that you wouldn't condone it? I mean, what, what do you think, guys? It, it, it's not on the agenda at the moment. Yeah. Um, maybe it could be in the future, but uh, yeah. yeah, certainly it's not not something that we're focused on yeah. right now. It's interesting, though. Yeah. No, I think it's I think it's a very, I think it's a very interesting question. And now you now you raise it. I remember what an absolutely hot topic it was for the IFA sector before before we managed to um, surmount. There were, there were legal obstacles, the nature of which. I can't now recall because it it's 25 years ago, so I'm afraid I can't recall. But I know it was a very, very, very tricky issue. And then a, a market developed. Um, Roy, I think we're almost coming to the end. So have we got time for another, yes, another one? Yeah. We've got quite yeah. a few hands. I'm, I'm going to stick around for a bit at the end. So um, do not despair. I will, I will um, if you're still talking to me, I will be happy to have a chat um, over, a, over a drink outside. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, I actually just wanted to go back to your, sorry, I'm Hannah from a communications consultancy um, in this sector quite a lot. Um, I wanted to go back to your analogy at the very beginning about helping somebody less able cross the road. Yeah. Um, let's say you've got somebody who helps them because they think it's the right thing to do and it's in their innate behavior to help that person cross the road. Yeah. But I may be skeptical about the human race, but think a lot of people might help that person cross the road because they think other people around them will think shame on yep. them if they don't. Yep. Um, how much do you think things like SMR and having lots of training and policy, internal policies, would make those people help that person cross the road because other people will kind of look down on them if they don't? Or should we actually be focusing on people's innate behavior and identifying the people who would help that person cross the road because that's just within them and themselves? I think that's a, a fantastically interesting question. And I'm sort of with you on it in the sense, I think I'm with where the thrust of your question is, which is most of us do these kind of ethical things because we're a bit conscious other people are looking at us. And I know it's very common for people to say, oh, ethical <coughs> behavior is what you do when nobody's looking. But actually, most of us are kind of quite conditioned to think I'm going to do the right thing because people are looking at me or because people might find out sort of if I didn't, you know. So, and I think, I think the, way you, the way you work with ethical behavior is to harness that. So that if, for example, you know, we're talking here tonight about people doing different kinds of training that, you know, means you're doing more than just bare minimum, you know. You, you, you sort of want, we sort of want to get to a position where if you have to say, well, no, I haven't done any professional qualifications, actually. Everybody else goes, oh, really? Why not? You know, and that's a kind of, um, that's an important influencer 
of human behavior. You're absolutely right. And I think you have to try and harness that as well. It's not just that we want to um, harness innate goodness. It's also the power of public opinion. You know, we're, we're social animals. You know, we, we mind what people think about us. You know, shame is, is, is quite a powerful um, influencer of us. So I think, you know, if you're running a business and you want to get the right sort of behavior going, um, creating a culture where there's unstated peer group pressure of various kinds is quite important. And I don't mean that in a kind of nasty way, but actually, um, you know, in a, in a we ought to be moving towards a world where certain things are the norm. And if you say, well, no, I'm, I'm not qualified in that way, or no, I haven't done that training, that this causes sort of surprise amongst your colleagues. So that would be, that would be a good result. Right, one final question. Hi, I, does it work? Yes. I don't know if I need it, but um, I'm generally loud. Uh, I'm Pete Hahn. I'm the Henry Grunfeld Professor of Banking here at the IFS. And most of us, many of us in banking, had contacts with customers and clients. Banking in the future, there's going to be very few people working for banks and financial institutions that actually have any contact with the customers and businesses that they do business with as we go online. So do we need a whole different way of thinking about standards and things for uh, people who will be working in financial institutions who don't actually have contact? I think there's two questions nested within each other there, Pete. One is the business models of the industry are changing, possibly to depersonalize them, although my I'm going to stick my neck out and predict something here, which is we banking is going to be so important, certainly to retail and commercial customers, that we will be, as customers, we will be very loath to lose the personal connection, just as we, you know, I could probably get a robot to do a medical operation on me, but I'm not sure I want to, actually. You know, I still want someone to do a diagnosis, you know, before the robot starts cutting bits of me off, you know. Um, the, 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 the other bit of your question, let me just think, I thought there was a second bit there. Um, one, is, one is how the business models are changing. What was the rest of your question, Pete? Well, a lot of the standards that we, uh, I'm so loud anyway, I, I'm used to teaching large yeah. rooms. The, um, a lot of the standards that have been developed are about oh, conduct yeah. With, yeah. With yeah. when there's direct contact. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't agree with that, actually. And I'm going to give you a, a for example, okay? Um, here's, here's a little exam question, okay? Outside of banking, outside of banking, what do you think is the most, just give me a quick answer to this, what do you think is the most trusted brand name in the United Kingdom when it comes to retail? Any, any suggestions? John Lewis is the answer. Yeah. Now, John Lewis is in the process, very visibly, of shifting its business model from come to the store and buy something to do most of your shopping online and use our stores as showrooms, okay? And then do it online and then pick it up from Waitrose, okay? Now, they are changing their business model in a way that you might say is kind of depersonalizing it. However, 
the reason we all keep going on the John Lewis website is because we trust the values of that business. And we trust the fact that even in a depersonalized business model where, you know, I'm online, I'm doing things through their website, et cetera, et cetera, I'm, I, I trust that business to treat me right as a client. So I think, I think the implicit argument that says, as you take a business online, you can either afford to have different standards or you need to have different standards, possibly needs to be interrogated quite hard against the example of a firm like John Lewis, because their, their values and standards, which are very well understood in the trust given to the brand, have obviously continued seamlessly into a different business model. So there's a nice little case study for you, Pete, to discuss with your students. <laughs>